I love that song. I love the, the truth that it clearly and powerfully proclaims about the life that is ours through Jesus and Jesus alone. In fact, that is the, the message really that the church of God has been entrusted, to, uh, entrusted with. And really that's where uh, we're going to turn our attention today uh, to the role of the church in guarding that good news, guarding the gospel, protecting and preserving uh, the, the good news of new life in Jesus Christ, and specifically the role of a statement of faith in fulfilling that role, in uh, and fulfilling that call to guard the gospel. The next three Sundays, today and the next two, we're going to basically walk through our statement of faith. Um, our statement of faith is the Baptist faith and message in its most recent uh, expression, which was in the year 2000. So the Baptist faith and message, there are a few copies of that on the welcome table back there. If you haven't had a chance to look at that, you're welcome to take one of those with you uh, this morning. And the way that I see the, the, the statement of faith really kind of divided is into three primary categories. The first of those is gospel foundations. And the very first article in the statement of faith is on the scriptures. So we're going to talk today about the scriptures, about the Bible, and the foundational role that the Bible has in everything else that we say and believe and do and how we organize and what our mission is, okay? So gospel foundations really comes down to the scriptures. And so we're only going to talk today about article number one on the scriptures. Next week, we'll talk about really gospel truths. It's really kind of the bulk of the statement of faith comprised in that. Who is God? Who are we? Uh, what is the problem of sin and how that affected man's relationship with God? What has God done in Jesus to make that right? Uh, how, who the church is and how God has organized his people together um, and the kind of final state of things as we're moving toward uh, restoration and the consummation of all things in Christ. So that's really kind of just a big story of the Bible. Uh, we'll really talk about that next week and lay out the, the gospel truths that our statement of faith uh, discusses. And then the, the third uh, week of, of the statement of faith section is kind of gospel implications or, or gospel living. So it, it's really kind of like the character of the people of God based on these gospel truths. Uh, and so we'll look at, and that's kind of the latter five or six articles of the statement of faith. We'll look at those two weeks from today. Um, so today we really just, we start by talking about gospel foundations. But before we actually get into that, I want to just answer the question, why use a statement of faith at all? Why is a statement of faith or a confession, if you will, of faith a helpful thing? Why even bother? And I can think of at least three good reasons to use a statement of faith for the church. The first of that is to guard the gospel. The first reason to use a statement of faith is, is as a tool to guard the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes of the church. Uh, he's speaking to his uh, disciple, his protege, Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you. So there's this whole letter. I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, or support or foundation of the truth. 
And so the church, in Paul's mind, exists to guard and support the truth, the capital T truth, the message of Jesus Christ as crucified for sinners and raised for our salvation. So the church is a pillar and, excuse me, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The book of Jude, the third verse of that, says that Jude wrote this letter uh, to encourage the saints, the, the Christians, to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. To contend is to, to fight. It, it's to, to wrestle, to grasp the truth, to contend for the faith. And there's a basic reality just in human, our fallen human lives and existence that we drift, right? Our natural state is not to remain pure and true and faithful to the gospel and to the scriptures. It's going to be to drift away from them. That is the natural drift of people. And you can have proof of that by just looking at the culture around us, even Christian culture and churches who are, seem to be drifting away from the, the central and clear proclamations of the gospel in the scriptures. So knowing that we are, would naturally drift away from the things of the faith, we have to actively and intentionally contend for the faith, the body of truth that comprises the Christian faith, which was delivered once for all to the saints. And I would say the message about Christ crucified and raised for sinners as we find it in the scriptures, is once for all delivered faith, the faith. And the role of the church is to fight for that and to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to drift. And I think a statement of faith can, uh, can serve us in that way. It's, it provides boundaries. This is what we believe encompasses the biblical faith, the, the Christian faith. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Again, we're going to be prone to waver. We're going to be prone to drift. And so we need to make sure that we are contending and holding fast. That is tight. Hold tight to the confession of our hope. And so a statement of faith can help us as a church to guard the gospel, right? to hold fast to that uh, confession and to contend for the faith. Second reason that the statement of faith is useful is that it provides a basis of doctrinal unity. Doctrinal just means teaching, right? So it, it is a, a, the basis of a, a unity of teaching, what we can teach and how other people know whether or not this would be a church where they could uh, connect well and to be like-minded. So we don't say, well, we're this kind of church generally and we believe these kinds of things. We could say, here's our statement of faith. Right? It says very plainly what we believe the church is, what we believe the gospel is, and how we believe the church, the Christian people, are supposed to live out their faith in God. And so it provides an objective, uh, measurable uh, form of what our teaching is. Um, you may have heard people say before, well, we should have no creed but the Bible, right? The Bible is enough. We just, no, the, the Bible is all we need. We don't need a statement of faith, elaborating stuff. We just need just the Bible. And that sounds great. And obviously, we're going to talk today about the importance of the Bible and the centrality of the Bible in the life of the church. But it's not really adequate for guarding the gospel and, and establishing that kind of unity of doctrine and teaching. 
because first of all, just about everybody, anybody who claims to be a Christian will at least verbally affirm the Bible. Oh yes, yes, we believe the Bible. We think the Bible is God's word. We think the Bible is, uh, is, uh, is good and wise and we should, we should read it and we should follow it. But everybody doesn't mean the same thing by that. And even if you verbally affirm the Bible, yeah, 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 the Bible is God's word. That doesn't necessarily mean that in practice you really live like it's God's word. So there's plenty of churches and denominations and traditions that say, yep, believe the Bible, who in practice really have drifted away from it in some pretty substantial ways. And so, first of all, everybody affirms the Bible. So just saying no creed but the Bible is not really distinctive. It doesn't distinguish you from anybody else. And secondly, whose interpretation of the Bible are we talking about? When you say no creed but the Bible, there's a lot of different ways that people have come to the scriptures and, and understood things differently. So what, what, what kind of unity can really be based around just saying, we just believe the Bible? Okay, but whose version of the, the biblical teaching or truths are we talking about here? So there's just a practical need to boil down what we, how this body, this church, will approach the scriptures and what we understand them to be teaching, which is not to say we're right in every case and everybody else is wrong in every case, because I think there's a, there's a humility that's necessary in this. We've got to recognize I'm probably wrong about some stuff. I'm sure I'm wrong about some stuff. I don't think I'm wrong or I wouldn't hold that belief, but I'm probably wrong somewhere, right? So it's not saying I'm right, everyone else is wrong, but it is saying this is how we're going to operate as a church. And there's some certain biblical teachings and understandings that we need to agree upon this is how we're going to do this, right? And so um, there, there's a, an objective measure there of, of unity in this statement of faith. So the goal is not just a generic biblical confession. We believe everything the Bible teaches. The goal is, is also a specifically and historically Baptist confession, right? Imprint Community Church doesn't have Baptist in the name, but it is and will be a Baptist church. We're affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, and uh, specifically, more locally, the Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware. Uh, and so we, we are forming, and, uh, and the, the Statement of Faith forms a foundation of, a statement of, a historically Baptist confession of faith and understanding of the faith. Which leads to the third and final reason I'll mention about why use a Statement of Faith. It is an expression of historical continuity. In other words, we're not the first people that have believed this. We're not the first people that have organized the church this way. We're not the only people to have read the scriptures and come to these conclusions. And in fact, we're not even the first people to use this statement. The Baptist faith and message was adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention in the year 2000. So this version of the Baptist faith and message has at least 17 years of, of history of unifying Baptists. So Baptists organize around this statement. This rendition of the Baptist faith and message was based on a version in 1963, which itself was based on a version from 1925, with some small revisions along the way dealing with certain uh, distinctives that needed to be made or clarifications that needed to be made because of cultural teachings or, or drift, if you will. And that 1925 Baptist faith and message was itself based on the New Hampshire Confession of 1833. So, the statement of faith that we use to kind of organize around and say this is a summary of what we believe the gospel is and how we should live it out really goes back at least, I don't know, almost 200 years, 170 years or so, um, to the New Hampshire Confession where it was based on that statement. And that statement has plenty of other connections to Baptists before that. 
So, the, so it's good for us, I think, to recognize that we're not the first Christians, we're not even the first Baptists, we're not the first people to uh, organize a church in this way and believe these things, all right? So we're, we're really standing on the shoulders of Christians of generations and centuries past, and that's important for us to see and to remember. So there's a few reasons on why using a statement of faith to help us guard the gospel to provide a basis of doctrinal unity and as an expression of historical continuity to show our connection to Christians and Baptists of generations past. So let's talk about gospel foundations. So I've got the article, article number one on the scriptures up on the screen here. Let me just read it to you. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. That's a mouthful. It's a pretty robust statement uh, on the Bible. Contains a lot of of truth in it. I'm just going to, I'm probably not going to unpack every portion of it for you, but just to give you some, uh, some hooks to hang uh, your our understanding of the Bible on, I'm going to break this down into four basic statements about what the Bible is as we understand it and as is expressed in the Baptist faith message. First, the Bible is God's Word. We call it that all the time, the Word of God, God's Word. Uh, that phrase gets thrown around often, um, but it is important and it is essential to our understanding of what the Bible is and how the Bible came to be. Uh, if you were to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, you would find Paul saying these words to Timothy about the Scriptures. He says in verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I'm zeroing in right now on the very first phrase, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Some translations use the word inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God. And it really comes from a Greek word that Paul made up that means God-breath, God-breathed. It's a combination of theos, God, and uh, pneuma, basically, which is breath. So theopneustos, which is kind of a fun word to say, means God-breathed. So all Scripture is like God's breath, like it's breathed out by God. So all of the writings that compose the scriptures, uh, the Bible, are breathed out by God. Now, he's speaking specifically in this passage about the Old Testament scriptures. So he's writing to Timothy about the scriptures that he was raised on, which would have been the Old Testament. But by extension, his, I think this statement applies to all the New Testament writings as well. And the Apostle Peter, for example, will speak of Paul and his writings in the same category as Scripture. So he'll say, he says something about uh, Paul and some of Paul's things being hard to understand, 
And then he, say people, he says people will take Paul's words and twist them to mean other things, just like they do with the rest of the scriptures. So Peter puts the writings of Paul on par with the Old Testament and these prophecies uh, that God had given through these men of old. And so, um, so when we speak of the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think we can use this phrase. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. It comes from his mouth to us. Speaking of Peter, he also says in 2 Peter chapter 1, nope, I just went right past it. He speaks uh, of how the scriptures came to be. And he says that no prophecy of God was, came about by the opinion or the will of man. There it is in verse 20. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's Peter's understanding of prophecy, is that one of God's appointed messengers was carried along by the Spirit of God such that what he spoke was God's word. So there's a human origin and that it came through a person, and there's a divine authorship and that he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So no prophecy, no word of an apostle that we would regard as, uh, as the New Testament came about by someone's own interpretation or by someone's own decision. I'm going to write something authoritative now. It happened when God, by his Holy Spirit, spoke through his messengers, the prophets, the apostles, and gave, uh, the, spoke forth the word of God. And interestingly, Peter says in that same passage that the revealed word of God through these messengers is even more sure than the eyewitness account the eyewitness testimony that Peter himself has about Christ. He says up in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's saying, I'm not just telling you stories here. I was there. I saw Jesus raised from the dead. For when we received honor, or when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter says, I was there. I saw the transfiguration when, the, when God spoke from heaven, and we heard the voice. We were there. So I'm not just telling you something that got passed down to me as a myth. I saw it. I heard it. But then he says... We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And that's where he begins speaking about the origin of Scripture, prophecy coming about through the Holy Spirit. So he says, I was an eyewitness. I saw Jesus raised. I saw Jesus transfigured. I heard the voice of God from heaven. But the prophetic word is even more sure than that. This is the word of God. And we need to approach it with that kind of seriousness and that kind of reverence and expectation. When we come to the Bible, we should expect God to speak to us as we read it and not go, okay, well, let's see what I can come over there. All right, I read a paragraph, checked off my box, did my duty for the day. We should come to the Scriptures expecting God to talk to us through the Scriptures. There should be truths in the Scriptures that pierce us 
either convict us of sin or comfort us with a promise of God there or some other way God should speak to us through the Scriptures. He will speak to us through the Scriptures, and we should expect it. This is His Word. Second statement. The Bible is trustworthy. It's trustworthy. There's a lot of shade that people throw at the Bible. It's too old. It was written over too long a period of time. It's just written by people, and people are you know fallible and can't keep anything straight. You might have heard people use the analogy of the game of telephone where you have people in a line or in a circle and one person whispers a message and it goes around the circle. By the time it gets back to the last person, it like doesn't even sound anything like what the original message was. Anybody played that game before? So, so people go, the scriptural you know, translation and copying and all that is just like the game of telephone. There's no way to know that what we have in the Bible is anything like what the apostles and prophets actually wrote. But the truth is, if you were to spend any time uh, reading or examining the process by which the New Testament specifically came into existence, you would be astounded at how much confidence we can have that not just the Greek text that we have available, but, but English translations like the English Standard Version that I prefer and that I preach from, or the, North, the New American Standard Bible, or uh, even the King James Bible, all these English translations that we have, many of them are extremely reliable and very close to, um, so, to what these uh, ancient manuscripts say. Just a few things to say on this. I don't want to get bogged down in a, a history lesson or anything here, but just a few things to say that I think might uh, inspire your confidence in the Bible. Firstly, um, there, there are no other Christian writings, writings even made in the name of of Christianity or supposing to be or purporting to be in the name of an apostle that date to the first century except for the New Testament. The documents that comprise the New Testament are the only Christian writings that have been found to have been written within the first century AD, right? So Jesus died on the cross somewhere in the mid-30s, say 35, 36 AD, something like that. All of the New Testament, with the possible exception of the book of Revelation, was finished being written by about 67 AD. So within about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of the documents that that comprise the New Testament were written. Possibly the book of Revelation was written about 90 AD, which uh, would have been uh, the the farthest away from the life and, and death and resurrection of Christ. But Everyone doesn't even agree that that's how late that was written. Some believe it was written earlier. But the point is, these are very early uh, testimonies. It's very early witness to the life and the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus that we find in these New Testament documents. Secondly, there is like something close to 6,000. I think it's about 5,800 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament. So the New Testament has almost 6,000 actual witnesses, you know, paper witnesses, copies of the scriptures uh, to testify to it. And I think that the second most copies of any ancient writing is uh, Homer's uh, is, is Odyssey. I think it's the Odyssey. And I think there's eight copies. Eight. Not 800. Eight. Eight copies. Most people don't challenge the historical reliability of the Odyssey with our eight copies of it. But we have almost 6,000 copies of the New Testament. Just to put it in perspective, 
we're not guessing here. It's not, we're not, people are not blindly just slapping stuff into the Bible and going, yeah, yeah, we should trust this. We have six, almost 6,000 copies of the New Testament, some of them dating even to the second century, that, that speak to the, the truthfulness of the New Testament. The New Testament was composed not by, uh, whatever you may have heard, not by the vote of a bunch of bishops in Nicaea. That's another kind of popular story that people like to tell about the Bible. Um, kind of popularized by that novel by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. Anybody remember when that came out? And it was like this big deal. And people were like, see, the church has been hiding the truth and the Bible can't be trusted and all this. It's a work of fiction. It's a novel. Like, and that's what we're basing all of our reality on. So he, has, he kind of popularized the idea that the New Testament as we know it didn't even exist, like wasn't even com- com- uh, compiled, that's the word I'm looking for, until 325 when, during the Council of Nicaea, which was convened by the Emperor Constantine. And they, he called everybody together and said, all right, vote on which books are going to be in the Bible. And they went, okay, how about this one and that one? No, not this one. How about this one? And so critics will go, well, you didn't even know what the New Testament was until the fourth century when a bunch of old guys sat around and voted on which ones they think should be in that's not how the New Testament came about. This is not how it was. There were a couple of councils early on uh, in the fourth century that spoke to the question of, quote, canon, which is the, the body of uh, documents that would comprise the New Testament. But they were not, their goal was not to authorize any document, but to simply affirm what the church had already universally recognized as having been written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle and bearing uh, the marks of truth, like in line with the teaching of the apostles. So they didn't authorize anything, go, we think this one's good, that one's not. They merely formally affirmed what the churches from the very beginning had been using. So in other words, they recognized, you know, the churches have been using these four gospel accounts by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And and these 13 letters from the Apostle Paul, and these two letters from the Apostle Peter, right? They went through these letters and went, this is what the churches have been reading and using for their encouragement and copying and passing along. And so we're merely affirming if these are the books that, uh, that the church has recognized universally across the world as apostolic in origin and thus to be trusted. So there's more on that that could be said. You could, there's studies that you could read if you're interested in that just ask me and I'll point you to some resources um, and then of course I've already talked about the the vast amount of copies uh, of, of the New Testament that we have and so we have a huge amount uh, of evidence that we can point to and that we can compare one manuscript versus another and where a change comes in you can look at what got changed and usually you can tell a story of why it got changed so most of the differences between copies of the New Testament or spelling errors or a date that's, you know, off by a year or something like that. Nothing that undoes the, the Christian faith, right? Nothing that, that pokes holes at all or, or casts doubt on um, the truthfulness of the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the Bible's trustworthy. Again, more that could be said about that, but I think that's enough for now. The Bible is God's word. The Bible is trustworthy. And because those two things are true, number three, the Bible is authoritative. There's not a whole lot that needs to be said on this point except just to draw it out. Uh, If the Bible is God's voice, and if the Bible is true, like it actually 
records for us God's words and God's message, then we're obligated to obey it. As creatures, as human beings created by God, we are obligated to obey his word, to believe it and to obey it. You're probably familiar with the words of James. In James 1 verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. So if you read the Bible and listen to the Bible and talk about the Bible, but you don't obey it, you're like a guy who looks intently at himself in a mirror, trying to figure out how to best present himself to the world, and then walks away and goes, wait, what did I, what did I just do? What, do I need to brush my hair again? Wow, I don't know what I just saw. Right? It's, it's pointless. It is pointless to hear the word and not do it. And I would add, to not believe it. If you hear the word, but you don't believe it, and you don't put it into practice, your faith is useless. That's kind of what James goes on to say. So if the Bible is God's word, and if the Bible is trustworthy, then it's also authoritative. We are obligated to observe and obey and honor uh, the teachings that we find there. So we are, our consciences are bound to this. To use the words of Martin Luther, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And that is true of all of us. We are captive to his word. And then finally, the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. It means it's enough. There's a, a story in Joshua Harris's Dug Down Deep that our men are reading together. I'm just going to read this passage to you from Dug Down Deep. I asked God for a sign, she told me. My fellow pastor Isaac and I were meeting with a young woman in the church who was ensnared in an immoral relationship with a non-Christian boyfriend. I know that God brought him into my life for a reason, she kept saying. How do you know this, I asked. I just know it, she said. We were meeting to plead with her to turn from sin. I read three passages from the Bible that forbid sex outside of marriage or sexual immorality. He lists 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians 4. Do you see that God says what you're doing is wrong? I asked. Yes, I see that, she said. I know it's immoral. I'm just asking God to show me what to do, she said. Earlier that week, she had woken up in the middle of the night plagued with doubt about her relationship. Maybe she should break it off. God, please give me a sign, she had prayed. That day was their anniversary. As she drove to work, she had the thought that her boyfriend had never sent her flowers at work. Then she walked into her office to a beautiful bouquet of roses. Was that a message from God? She asked me through tears. Is that my answer? I found it ironic and sad that she was consumed with discovering a sign from God. The anniversary, flowers, being awake in the middle of the night. When God was speaking to her clearly in the Bible, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that in John 14. I think we can easily fall prey to that. We can easily think that our, what we feel God is leading us to do or, or what we hope for or what we really want to see happen, we can kind of convince ourselves that's what God wants. Or I really think God told me this or God led me to do this. 
when at times there's clear teaching from the Word of God that would say the exact opposite. I've heard people say, you know, like, it's okay for me to leave my wife and family for this other woman because God just wants me to be happy. Where do you find that in here? Where do you find that in the Scriptures? And in fact, the Scriptures say often that your happiness is not the most important thing, but your holiness. And the Scriptures say all over the place that you're to honor the marriage bed and to keep it pure, and that you're to honor the covenant of marriage and to not become an adulterer. That's the, the word that the Bible uses. So whatever sense you have that God wants you to be happy and therefore it's okay to violate clearly revealed principles and teachings of Scripture is way off base. That's just not how we're supposed to live the Christian life. That's not what it means to know and follow God. So let me just say, to summarize this notion that the Bible is sufficient, we don't need a new word. We don't need to hear new, specific, direct messages from God because he's spoken to us everything he intended to say in the scriptures. There's a line of uh, an old hymn, How Firm a Foundation, which hopefully, yeah, we'll sing here in just a few minutes. It says, what more can he say than to you he hath said? You've already got this treasury of the, the truth and the teaching in the heart of God in the scriptures. What more do you want from him? And I would also say, that most of the time when people say, I just sense God is leading me to do this, or this is what God told me to do, so I'm just going to do this anyway, if you were to ask that person, when's the last time you, you read the scriptures? When's the last time you spent time in the Bible on this particular topic to find out what God says, has already said about it? I think most of the time they'll go, yeah, I haven't really done that. So I'm not really basing my life and my decisions on what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures. I'm basing my life and my decisions on kind of what I feel feel like God might be leading me to do. That's not the way to live life. That's not the way to follow Jesus. So we don't need a new word. We don't need direct instructions. Let me say this too. A lot of times when we have big decisions to make, even small decisions can paralyze us at times, we have decisions to make. What job should I take? Who should I marry? Where should I live? Should I buy this house or not? All the, we have all these various decisions that we have to make, 10,000 of them every day, and we get very worried about making the right decision, right? Am I going to do the right thing? Because I don't want to choose the job and then find out that God actually intended me to take that job over there, and now I've totally blown it. And now I'm way off the mark, and God's going to have to, like, do all this creative work to, like, reroute to, like, get me to where he wants me to be, as though God's sovereignty and providence and wisdom is not enough to factor in the choice that I would make about which job to take. So instead of panicking that we might make the wrong decision, why don't we approach the Word of God, look for wisdom, make sure that we're operating within the boundaries that He prescribes to us. Is the decision I'm about to make immoral? Is it going to lead me away from a relationship with Christ? Is it going to keep me from uh, following Him and serving Him in, in any capacity? And if it's not violating any clear command of Scripture, just do what you want, right? Make a decision. Jesus says that we panic about all this stuff, and he says, don't worry. Saying, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to live? What am I going to drive? Who am I going to marry? He doesn't make that long a list, but I think we can extend that list to all the stuff that we panic about. He says, don't worry about that stuff. The pagans, they run after all that stuff too. They worry about all that stuff too. But your father knows what you need before you even ask him. So don't worry about all that stuff. Just, what's he say? 
Everybody remember this passage? Seek first what? Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And then all that other stuff, I'll take care of it. It'll be added to you, right? Don't panic about that stuff. Don't go, I need some sign in the clouds. I need a message from God about what to do here. Just make a decision in your best attempt to honor God and follow the principles of the scriptures and then trust him. Trust him to take care of the rest. The Bible is sufficient. In that passage we read earlier from 2 Timothy, right after Paul says that the scriptures are breathed out by God, he also says that they're useful. They're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How am I going to be equipped for every good work? By knowing the scriptures. How am I going to be complete as a man of God, as a follower of Jesus? Know the scriptures. Read them. Learn them. Live them. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to for us and how we respond to that. If the Bible is God's word, if the Bible is trustworthy, if the Bible is authoritative, and if the Bible is sufficient, read it, learn it, and live it. I think that's what it comes down to for us. And that's easy to say. Believe me, I grew up in church. I'm a church kid. I've been in church all my life. I can't tell you how many times I've heard messages or challenges, been to youth camp and been you know, challenged by the speaker or whatever. Got to start your day with the scripture, right? Don't look at your phone first. Don't turn on the TV first, whatever. Don't get your coffee from the newspaper first. The first thing you should do is open the Bible and read the Bible. And that's how you should start your day. Scripture and prayer, and that's how you begin. And if you don't do that, your whole day is going to be tanked, right? I can't tell you how many messages I've heard about the importance of the Bible and how I should organize my life around it that made me that left me with the feeling that I will never be able to do this. Okay, maybe I'm inspired for the moment. I'm going to go out. Now I'm going to read the Bible all the time. I'm going to start every single day with a, you know, an hour-long Bible study and time of prayer. And I've got my prayer list. And I'm doing this. This is how I'm starting every day. And I do that for, what, three days maybe? Fourth day I miss. That's okay. I'll pick it back up. Fifth day I start again. But maybe it's only like 30 minutes. And then by, by the second week, it's like, it's toast. It's just done. Like I'm, and now I'm a total failure, right? I was, this is God's word and I can't even get myself to read it. I can't even start my day with it. And now what's intended to be good news is just sitting on my shoulders like a burden, like a million tons. That's not what God intends. That's not how the word of God is, is supposed to be in our lives. And so I want to be very careful not to just strap you with some legalistic burden to make sure that you're getting a certain amount of time in the Bible or at a certain time of the day or anything like that. I think you've got to know yourself. Listen, if you're like me, mornings are tough. Like you're probably not going to get up at five in the morning, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, as my mom always used to say, ready to like dive into a deep study of Scripture. That's probably not going to happen. So do it some other time. When is your good time? When are you most alert? When are you most awake? Carve out a few minutes during that time. If you're a night owl, okay, study the Bible at 11 at night. Who cares? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you're better right after lunch, then say for 30 minutes after lunch, I don't take meetings, I don't answer emails, I spend time in the scriptures. Whatever it is. 
don't set up for yourself unattainable, legalistic, rigid standards that you have to follow to be a good Christian, and then just set yourself up to fail. So what I want you to, to hear is, this is important. And I think if we understand it to be important and we say that we believe, yeah, this is God's word, this is, this is the basis of life and faith, then there is a certain disconnectedness that takes place when we're not ever going to it. We're, don't, we're not consulting its wisdom for our decisions. We're not spending any time at all trying to learn it. And I know it's big and it's intimidating and sometimes we go like, I don't even know how to read the Bible. That's okay. Just start somewhere. Get a book about how to read the Bible and follow those instructions or find a friend or a pastor or something who might give you some guidance and just start somewhere and ask God to bless it. God, will you help me here? I don't know where to start. I'm just going to read. Will you show me something? And you know what? I think God will honor that. I think God is delighted by that. So don't set up some rigid system that you have to follow. Just do something, right? Just take a step. You don't have to go from where you are to spiritual giant, you know, Martin Luther spending six hours a day studying scripture, that kind of thing. That's not the goal. Just take a step. If you haven't cracked your Bible in a year, then the next step for you might be just opening it and reading a couple of verses and thinking about it for a while and praying that God will show you something from it. Don't think 20 steps down the road. Just think, what is the next thing for me to do? And take that step. Talk about it with people. That's why the church is helpful. That's, why, that's what the church exists to do. We encourage each other in our faith. Part of how we do that is by talking about the Bible. I don't understand this. What, is this. what do you get from this? Well, here's how I kind of think that might mean. Oh, yeah, I could see how that would relate to our statement of faith because it says this about Jesus, and that would be consistent with this passage. You can even use our statement of faith as a guide. By the way, the, uh, I actually don't think it's on that, but you can find the Baptist Faith and Message on the Internet, and there's like lists of Scripture verses under each article. So like the article on the Scripture has like probably 20 verses that it's based on. Start there. Go look up verses in the Bible that those doctrines are based on and just give that some thought, give that some attention. Okay? So I don't need to blabber anymore, but just take a step. Decide for yourself if you really believe that this is God's word. And if it is, just take a step to, to give it more of a place in your life and give your ear to the Lord and ask him to, to speak to you and to work in you through it. And I believe he'll do that. Let's pray.